1637, Massachusetts went to war with the Pequot tribe. Over the course of this series, we've hit on some of the events leading up to the Pequot War from the Puritan perspective, but it's worth recapping the events themselves and this time filling in the Pequot side of the conflict. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. In 1630, the Pequots had been the strongest tribe in New England. They, alone with the Narragansett, had been spared by the epidemics that ravaged the area between 1616 and 1619. Lesser tribes paid tribute either to the Pequots or to the Narragansetts, and the Pequots enjoyed a great trading relationship with the Dutch. It was the Pequots who introduced the Dutch to wampum, and as they gave the Dutch 10,000 pelts a year to ship home, the relationship had helped the tribe emerge as the dominant Indian power in the region. The Massachusetts Puritans also seemed to respect the Pequots. Unlike the Podunks, who they described as manipulative, the Mohawks, who they described as threatening, or the Narragansetts, who they described as mercenary, in the early 1630s, the English described the Pequots as courteous and trustworthy. They were the preferred trading partner in the region for English and Dutch alike. In 1633, though, everything changed. The Pequots were hit by a plague, which killed 80% of their population. In the aftermath of the epidemic, the Dutch changed the nature of Pequot trade, pushing the tribe to sign an agreement which allowed other tribes to use their trading posts, ending their monopoly on Dutch trade. So the population damage led to an economic blow. The Pequots signed the agreement, but their warriors soon killed a group of Indian traders, likely Narragansetts, who were traveling to one of the trading posts. Who were traveling to one of the trading posts. There were more than trade issues at stake with the Narragansetts. Narragansett power had been increasing as the Pequots diminished, and after the plague, the Narragansetts had a bigger population and better trading relations with the Europeans. They also used their influence to convince smaller tribes to stop paying tribute to the Pequots and to start paying it to them instead. So Pequot influence diminished even more. So they'd gone to war with the Narragansetts, and in the very short conflict, they effectively demonstrated to the Narragansetts that even in their weakened state, they weren't people to be trifled with. But though it wasn't the Dutch who had been killed, the Dutch retaliated for the traders' deaths. It was Dutch trade at stake, and they needed to show the Pequots that they couldn't control that trade by force. So the Dutch kidnapped the leader of the Pequots, a a man named Tatobum, and demanded a ransom of a bushel of wampum, or the Pequots would never see him again. The Pequots sent the payment and the Dutch sent Tatobin back to his tribe, dead. This was an insane and totally unjustifiable reaction on the Dutch part, 
and the Pequots wanted revenge. The problem was that they got their revenge on a drunken Englishman, not a Dutch trader. That Englishman was Captain Stone, the privateer and trader who had been banished from Plymouth and Massachusetts and who had stopped to trade with the locals on his way back to the Chesapeake. He wasn't liked, but he was English, and the English demanded the Pequots explain their behavior and make it right. To Tobin's death, had also brought about a crisis of succession within the Pequot tribe. Pequot tradition stipulated that sachems must come from the same ruling family, but within that family, the leader would be selected by the tribe as a whole. There were three major candidates to succeed to Tobum. There was Sassicus, Uncas, and Weequash. Sassicus won, but Uncas and Weequash refused to accept the result. Both left the tribe, but Uncas in particular spent the next few years fleeing to the Narragansetts, then asking forgiveness, and after moving on to Pequot land, trying again to depose Sassicus. Then he would be forced to flee again, and the cycle started all over again, and he did this about five times over the course of just a few years. When he was finally pushed out for good, Uncas allied with the Narragansetts and the English and formed his own tribe, the Mohegans. And using these alliances, he started to pull away even more of the small tribes who had once paid tribute to the Pequots, gaining their loyalty in wampum and further weakening his former tribe. So when, in fall 1634, the Pequot sent an envoy to Boston to negotiate a peace treaty in the wake of Stone's murder, they were in a very weak position, and weaker, in fact, than the English even realized. While the English wanted peace, justice, security, and to assert their authority in the region, the Pequots were hoping that an alliance with the English would help stop their decline. For them, a military as well as trade agreement would be ideal, and they hoped that by inviting the English to settle in Connecticut, they could strengthen their alliance and stop Narragansett and Mohegan incursion onto their lands. They got the trade alliance. According to the treaty, Pequots would get the exclusive right to trade with the Puritans. The Puritans were also eager to move into Connecticut. The English refused a military alliance, though, which was unfortunate. But worse, as a condition for Massachusetts' ratification of the treaty, the colonists demanded the Pequots turn over Stone's murderers, as well as an unfathomable sum of wampum, the equivalent of half the colony's tax revenue that year. This would be the price for peace. The Pequot delegation signed the treaty, but when they returned home, the sachems refused to ratify it. They'd never authorized something so excessive, and they didn't even get a military alliance out of it. The Pequots still pursued trade, they still sent some wampum and beaver skins, and they still encouraged the English to settle near them, but they wouldn't ratify the treaty, and they knew that in the absence of Stone's murderers, or the full payment of wampum, the colonists wouldn't either. When they explained this to John Oldham, he called them a false people, and the English felt that the Pequots had acted in bad faith. 
They did start settling Connecticut, though, and by 1637, a string of English towns dotted the Connecticut River. Hartford, Concord, Saybrook, and soon New Haven were populated either by Puritans who didn't fit in in Massachusetts or by new groups of Puritans moving from England with their own plans for colonization. Conditions at most of these settlements were harsh, and only a couple hundred people lived at any of them. At Saybrook, colonists sent a petition to England complaining that they had neither bread nor beer and that they were just living on pea porridge, and complaining that the nobles had neither sent them supplies nor a minister. Many of the people, they said, were living in makeshift caves or cellars around a single fort. So life in Connecticut for the English wasn't that great, but the settling of Connecticut didn't help the Pequots the way they hoped either. Knowingly or unknowingly, the English were allying with a network of Indians working to break up the already weakened Pequot Confederation. Pequot tributaries were inviting the English to move into their towns to protect them from the Pequots. And more alarmingly, Pequot enemies were taking advantage of their newfound proximity to the English to turn the English against the tribe. The most notable of these enemies was Uncas of the Mohegans. He spread rumors about planned Pequot attacks, for instance, telling Jonathan Brewster of Plymouth that Sassacus was planning an attack on Plymouth's trading ship, and saying that Stone's murder had been a carefully planned operation which Sassacus himself had been involved in. Already suspicious about the broken treaty, the English started to believe the rumors and started to see the Pequots as an extremely dangerous presence in the region. There weren't enough Algonquin-speaking Englishmen to verify the rumors, and Roger Williams was their best source of information, but he was also exiled and living with the Narragansetts, which meant that he was informed by people with their own agendas. Then a couple of English traders were killed on Long Island, and fear increased yet again, with the English not knowing if Pequots were responsible. Vane and the council decided to act. Even in the midst of the antinomian controversy, this was something that pretty much everyone in the colony could agree on. Vane commissioned John Winthrop's son, accompanied by George Fenwick, Hugh Peter, John Oldham, and translator Thomas Stanton, to investigate Pequot conduct and to push the tribe to fulfill the obligations of the 1634 treaty. If they refused, they were to return the wampum and furs that the Pequots had given them in 1634, and tell the Pequots that the English felt no obligation to be at peace with the people who were guilty of shedding English blood. If they refused to surrender Stone's murderers, the English would seek revenge. Furthermore, if the English found signs of Pequot involvement in the Long Island deaths, they would again take revenge. The Englishmen of the Connecticut River Valley, though, didn't want Massachusetts to go through with this plan. Saybrook's leader, Lyon Gardner, told Winthrop Fenwick and Peter's delegation that while Massachusetts would remain safe no matter what happened, Saybrook would be the first to suffer if violence broke out between the English and Pequots. As it was, they barely had holes to put their heads in, 
and there were only 24 people living in the fort with food for no more than two months. They had a corn crop that was growing, but they needed to be able to harvest it before hostilities broke out or they would starve. The delegation ignored their pleas. They summoned the sachem, and when he refused the terms of the rejected treaty, they returned the wampum and furs and told the Indians that they were planning to avenge Stone's death. In fact, they were so intimidating that the Niantic sachem, Sassius, who was allied with the Pequots, offered Winthrop a large grant of land in exchange for protection. A few days after the delegation left, a Pequot who had learned English while living in Plymouth visited Saybrook and said that Sassicus wanted to continue trade with the colony. Regardless of the threats, the Pequots wanted a peaceful trade with the English, and he had also found two stray English horses and he would return them if Gardner would send a trading party. Gardner wanted good relations as much as Sassicus did, but he suspected that this was a trap. So he sent the trading party, but gave them specific instructions about how to remain as safe as possible during the mission. They must remain constantly armed, and they must stay in the area only one day, leaving the Pequot River before dark. And they must only allow one Pequot canoe to approach the shallop at a time, and that canoe must have no more than four Indians on board. The English tried following the directions, but the Pequots were afraid to board the shallop in a way that rendered them so vulnerable. They could easily end up like Totobum, kidnapped and killed in revenge for Stone's death. So they decided to send two Englishmen ashore, one to prepare a meal and the other to confront the sachem about the horses. When that man entered the wigwam, armed with a sword, all of the Indians fled except for Sassicus's wife. She told him to go and made a series of gestures, including one which he interpreted to mean that the Pequots were planning to cut off his head. He pulled out his sword, and the two Englishmen fled to the ship. The Pequots called them to come on shore again, but they left and went home. Whether or not an attack was actually planned... The incident cemented English paranoia about the Pequots. The Puritans were sure that they'd been led into an ambush. The event came after months of paranoia and Uncas's rumors, and many people in Massachusetts wanted to go to war with the Pequots and just get it over with. And it wasn't long before they had a genuine outburst of violence to put them over the edge. On July 20th, 1636, a man named John Gallup was sailing by Block Island, which was home to one of the small tribes who had changed their allegiance from Pequot to Narragansett as Pequot power had diminished. There, he saw John Oldham's ship, but oddly, he couldn't see even one Englishman on board. There were, however, 14 Indians. He hailed the ship but no one answered. Gallup shot the sides of the ship with duck shot and then rammed it with his own boat. This startled the Indians, and some jumped overboard to escape. He then shot the sides and rammed the ship again, and a third time until there were only four Indians left on board, and then he and his crew fought their way onto the ship. They took one prisoner and either killed or drove the others away. 
Once on board, they found Oldham's body, still warm, stripped naked, head split open, and hands and feet half cut off. The others in his company were also dead, except for two young boys who'd been taken prisoner, as well as Oldham's two Narragansett guides. They buried the dead at sea and left the ship at the Narragansett shore. And then they took the news back to Boston, and as the colonists investigated the event, the Narragansett sachem Canonicus sent a message to Boston via Roger Williams saying that the Narragansetts were deeply grieved by Oldham's death and would avenge it. Canonicus sent Oldham's two guides to Boston as messengers to discuss the event and did everything that he could to show his goodwill. The Narragansetts had always been skeptical of the English, but Canonicus knew that he couldn't win in a battle against them, and having trade with the English was a nice bonus. He wanted to protect his tribes, and cooperating with the Puritans was the way to do this. But there was a significant portion of his tribe that disagreed with him. Back in Boston, the court interrogated Gallup's Narragansett prisoner, and he told them that the murder was a planned event which the Narragansetts had helped to organize. Canonicus and Miantonoma weren't involved, but every one of the tribe's other sachems were, and so were Oldham's two guides. He said that the Narragansetts had been upset that Oldham was working to open trade with the Pequots, who were their strongest rivals, and Roger Williams who had also been looking into the event, gave a very similar account to the Narragansett prisoner. The magistrates let the guides return to Canonicus because they'd been sent as messengers, but Vane asked Williams to tell Canonicus that he demanded the immediate return of the two English hostages. War with the Narragansetts was now a distinct possibility, and Vane also told Williams to, quote, look to himself. The next day, Vane sent a message directly to Canonicus, saying that he suspected the guide-slash-messengers of complicity in Oldham's murder, and saying that while he refrained from arresting them while on a diplomatic mission, he now expected them to send the two back to Boston for investigation. And Canonicus agreed. He also said that he'd return Oldham's remaining trade goods. But he never sent the guides, and... The 50 pounds in gold coins which had been taken were never returned either. In response to this, Vane demanded the return of everyone who had been involved in the attack, but the Narragansett said that all of the people involved in the attack had taken refuge with the Pequots. Oldham's murder had had virtually nothing to do with the Pequots until this, but unfortunately for the Pequots, Canonicus's message came at the same time as the message that they themselves had sent, refusing to comply with the terms of the non-ratified 1634 treaty. This turned suspicions about the treaty rejection and rumors spread by Uncas and confusion over the trading party incident into outright terror. What if the Pequots and Narragansetts were collaborating to wipe out the English? The 1622 Powhatan Massacre in Virginia had left a strong impression on colonial New Englanders. 
The notion that something like that could happen played on every fear and doubt that people had while moving to America. They didn't really know the language, they didn't particularly know the landscape, and they did live alongside the Indians. In fact, in Connecticut, there were 19 Indians per Englishman living in even their biggest towns. And the notion that somebody could pretend to be your friend for years, only to turn around one day and kill your entire family with no warning made the New World scary, and it meant that colonists couldn't fully trust it. And this wasn't just the faint speculation of something that could possibly happen, it was the knowledge that something exactly like this had happened. There was no defending yourself against that, and any time an Englishman worried about Indian loyalty, the fear went directly to the memory of the massacre. If the Pequots and Narragansetts were secretly colluding, it was possible that they were planning a similar attack. There would be no defending themselves after the fact, so the Puritans decided to demonstrate their strength and the repercussion for killing Englishmen. To do this, they sent John Endicott with 90 volunteers for a punitive raid on both the Block Islanders and the Pequots. Before setting out, they met with Canonicus, who gave his approval for the mission and sent Miantonomo with a force to support the English attack. Their orders were to land on Block Island and kill all the adult males that they could find, but spare the women and children and take them hostage. Then they would go to the Pequots and demand the surrender of the murderers, as well as a thousand fathoms of wampum as back payment and children as hostages to ensure future good conduct. While they were supposed to go to Block Island with guns blazing, though, they were supposed to make the demands of the Pequots diplomatically at first, only resorting to violence if they encountered resistance. It was to be punishment of Block Island and intimidation of the Pequots. They reached Block Island at sunset and saw a single Indian walking on the shore. The others had either left or were preparing an ambush, so the English carefully approached the beach. As they did, the arrows started to fly at them. The shallops were moving too much in the wind to accurately shoot, so Endicott's volunteers jumped into the water and waded to shore, firing their guns as soon as they reached stable ground. The arrows soon stopped and the attackers disappeared. The first attack had been repelled with virtually no English casualties, and the group moved inland and set up a camp for the night. Over the next few days, they explored. They destroyed the cornfields, corn stores, and villages they found. They killed a few dogs, and they looked for the island's inhabitants. But with few exceptions, they couldn't find them. One Narragansett guide managed to kill a block islander who tried to encourage him to abandon the English, and a handful shot arrows at them from the edge of a swamp, but that was it. They had, however, destroyed virtually everything they owned. When Endicott's expedition reached Saybrook, Gardner was furious. You come hither to raise these wasps around my ears, and then you'll take wing and fly away? Saybrook was small, poor, vulnerable, and on the edge of English society. They would inevitably be the first to suffer, and their corn hadn't matured yet. 
If there was a siege, they would lose it. If Endicott persisted in his plan to attack the Pequots before the harvest, he would almost ensure that Saybrook would starve. Gardner asked Endicott to wait until after the harvest to attack the Pequots, but Endicott refused, so he asked Endicott to at least bring Saybrook some of the Pequot corn, but again he refused. So Gardner brought out six bags and gave Endicott a concrete plan for getting the corn effectively and said that he would send a ship full of his people and a hired Dutch trading ship to accompany the expedition to gather the corn. But Endicott needed to let the Saybrook and Dutch vessels leave first while the armed expedition was still protecting them. Endicott begrudgingly agreed to this. Unlike the Block Islanders, the Pequots and their western Niantic allies rushed out to greet the English as they approached. They welcomed them heartily, expecting to trade, but the English remained silent, and growing suspicious, they started asking very seriously why the English had come, but again received no answer. The English stayed on their ships overnight, while the Pequots and Western Niantics kept watch and prepared for the worst. At dawn, a Pequot elder boarded one of Endicott's ships and asked why they'd come. The governors of the bay sent us to demand the heads of those persons that had slain Captain Norton and Captain Stone and the rest of their company, was the reply. It was not the English custom to suffer murderers to live, so the Pequots could give them the murderers or face war. The Pequot response wasn't denial or evasion. They openly confessed that Sassicus himself had personally killed Stone. But they argued that this wasn't the sort of thing that should justify a war, because the murder in itself was an act of retribution to settle a grievance. He was avenging the death of his father, so who could blame him? They didn't know that Stone and his compatriots weren't accessories to the murder. They thought that the English and the Dutch were one nation, and it was a completely rational explanation. And many people may have accepted it, but we've repeatedly seen that Endicott wasn't that type of person. Endicott responded that the man had lied to them. The Pequots had dealt with both the English and the Dutch enough to know the difference between them. The man insisted that both were strangers to the Indians and that they took them all to be one group, so they asked for their forgiveness and emphasized that they had not intentionally wronged the English. Endicott responded that if they weren't immediately given the heads of the guilty, they would attack. And of course, the Pequots couldn't do this. Not only would that mean turning over innocent people for execution, it would mean one of those innocent people would be their own leader. So the man asked to go consult his people about what to do next, and the English allowed him to disembark. Then they also went ashore, clad in armor and in full battle array. They marched to the highest ground in the area, and as soon as they did, 
The envoy reappeared to tell them that there was no one in the area who could respond to their demands and that all the highest-ranking sachems had gone to Long Island. Again, Endicott called him a liar and said that if Sassacus didn't appear immediately, he would march through the country and spoil the corn. The envoy said he'd go try to find Sassacus, and he was gone for an hour. Then he returned, saying that he'd found a lesser sachem who was on his way to discuss the issues with him. And in the meantime, the tribe would go and try to identify Stone's remaining murderers. But it was over an hour before anyone came back to talk to the English after that. And in that time, they saw the women and children being moved away and the men burying their valuables. It looked like they were preparing for a battle, and Endicott decided that he would strike the first blow. A new envoy appeared and said that if the English would lay down their arms and march 30 paces toward the Pequots, a sachem would come forward to parley. In response, the English put up their battle flags and marched forward in full armor. They opened fire, marched into the village, set fire to the wigwams and corn, and dug up and destroyed the buried goods, and for the rest of the day they pillaged. On the way back to Saybrook, they wanted to visit the western Niantics, but all of them had fled, so Endicott's troops burned and spoiled whatever they could find there. They returned to Saybrook to find Gardner absolutely disgusted and infuriated. Endicott's men hadn't helped his people load the corn, and in fact, his people had still been loading the corn when Endicott's army sailed away, leaving them alone, unprotected, and surrounded by angry Pequots. A shift in the wind then blocked their passage downriver, so they had gone ashore to collect more corn until the wind changed, and while they were doing that, they had been attacked. They'd fought the attack off with a few rounds of musket fire and a show of swords, but the standoff had lasted for the rest of the afternoon until finally the Pequots withdrew and the wind shifted. Massachusetts provocation had condemned his men to starvation to begin with, and then Endicott had done absolutely nothing to help mitigate the damage. Endicott blew him off, and when Gardner listed his grievances in a letter to Boston, Winthrop also dismissed him, saying that Pequot arrows were shot at too steep an angle to do any real damage. There had been only one English casualty, so Gardner was overreacting. Gardner replied that in fact, in addition to that person, two of his own people had been injured, thanks in large part to Endicott's malfeasance and Massachusetts volunteers' cowardice. Soon, the other small, vulnerable settlements of the Connecticut region echoed Gardner's complaints. Plymouth's Bradford wrote saying that Massachusetts had provoked a war by attacking the Pequots, but Winthrop replied that Bradford should blame the Pequots because they were the ones who hadn't surrendered Stone's murderers. They hadn't gone to make war just to do justice, and justice they had done. Winslow wrote to Winthrop's son, the governor of the Connecticut River towns, saying that the Bay Colony settlers deserved no favor 
and that it was a pity that religion should be a cloak for spirits such as theirs. Connecticut also wrote, accusing Massachusetts of putting Connecticut lives in jeopardy with their heavy-handed provocation of an Indian war. They complained that none of these settlements had been consulted before Endicott's raid, and they, who were weaker, poorer, smaller, and closer to the Pequots and Narragansetts, would be the first to suffer the repercussions of the attack. And they were. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter. And you can find those links at the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to firsthand accounts and things. See you next week.